Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Tuesday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Back after a brief hiatus, did not necessarily intend for that to be the case. Had a couple interviews fall through last week. And then I was out for most of the week heading up to uh, New York for a wedding. But we are back back on a regular-ish podcast schedule. I'll probably make it up with hopefully four podcasts in the next little bit. But we've got Super Talk's Michael Borky talking a lot of Ole Miss fall camp, some state and the SEC as a whole at the end. So good catching up with our guy, Michael Borky, again. Um, a lot of different stuff about you know the typical first week of camp stories, quarterback play, both coordinators speaking last week and just really kind of catching up on the week that was – Ole Miss's first week of preseason camp. So great conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Got a lot of cool stuff coming on the horizon as well. Potentially a new regular football season podcast segment. That's right. No, we are not replacing Weldon Roderberg and Soccer Corner is here to stay. This is just adding on top of it. Uh, maybe a little bit more on that later in the week, but I think it'll be something cool that you guys will enjoy as we kind of get our uh, ducks in a row here before the uh, season actually gets underway so be on the lookout for that and we'll have a couple more pods for you later in the week but uh before we get to michael borky wanted to remind you podcast is brought to you by mims insurance glad to have my friend matt mims on board he's mims is an independent insurance agent based in oxford everything's expensive right now gas is expensive groceries are expensive if you've got something you need to get insured you want to make sure you get the best rate mims is a independent insurance agent whose sole job is to find you the best possible insurance rate. Whatever you need insured, whether it's a boat, car, house, uh, congrats on your boat if that's the case. Whatever you need insured, he can help you get the best rate. It can be overwhelming trying to find out what's the best way to go insurance-wise, whether it be provider, best rate. Just call Matt Mims and he'll handle all of that for you. That's overwhelming. You got enough going on as is. All you have to do is call him at 601-218- 7854 and he's going to get you taken care of tell him i sent you and he will get you the best rate possible all you have to do is sit by the phone and wait for him to get back to you he is the uh, best in the business absolutely he shops it through 10 different insurance agencies and comes back with the best possible deal for you so let him take the hassle out of the uh, shopping for insurance quotes and just let him handle the process for you he's a good friend of mine uh, he's de- definitely going to get you taken care of. Check him out there, MIMS Insurance. That is 601-218-7854. Podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. For Skybox going up so many units last weekend, I'll remind you. Weekend, our guy Mark Harris absolutely crushed it. Plus 34.85 units on the weekend, a plus 2,500 outright winner, a plus 332 unit winner, and a five-unit max winner. Year-to-date, they're 108 units up on NASCAR. Cup Series up 35 units, Xfinity 38 units, and Trucks 34 units. So basically, if you're not using Skybox, if you're a NASCAR fan and not using Skybox, you're just wasting free money. They're absolutely destroying it. And on top of that, there'll be an announcement soon that Skybox is going to make NASCAR package free for uh, all subscribers. We, uh, we'll have more on that a little bit later on uh, in the week, but I'll be on the lookout for that as the Skybox truly is the people's handicapping site. They've got all kinds of different picks packages on the site. From now through August 16th, you get 
anyone who signs up for a four-week or full-season pass for NASCAR through the remainder of the season. So a four-week or a full-season pass on NASCAR, you'll be entered into a chance to win a drawing for a four-week free NFL and NCAA package. So if you buy the NASCAR package by August 17th, you're going to be entered into a contest that will give you a chance to be drawn and win a four-week free NCAA and NFL four-week-long package. That's pretty awesome. They're still running the 50% off any picks package with the promo code Natty. Skybox is there to help you get winners. Get signed up with them before football season, whether it's month-long, season-long. I recommend just riding with them the whole year, all sports. But they're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, and they're going to lead you to profit more consistently than your own brain, certainly, and definitely more so than anyone else in the industry. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Glad to have those guys on board. Get ready for football season with Skybox. All right, here is Michael Borky on Ole Miss and a little bit of state and then just kind of a glance at the SEC as a whole. All right, we now welcome on Super Talk Do-It-All Man, Michael Borky, Sports Talk Mississippi, 3 to 6, Monday through Friday. Got the YouTube channel rolling, my former colleague. What's, uh, what's happening, man? How's, uh, how's life? We've got finally football's back, sort of. This is kind of the slow buildup, which is better than the dog days of summer, but uh, what's happening on your end? Yeah, football is back for the okay. So football was back when NFL training camp started, and then football was back when college training camp started, and then football was back when the Hall of Fame game was here. So we are three football is backs down, which is pretty exciting. You know, take your pick, but with like five more to go. With five more to go, so the Saints will have their preseason game this weekend. No Jameis, he tweaked his foot, but he's okay. Um. So football's back then, and then week zero is 19 days away. So football's back then. So that's five, right? And then Ole Miss starts on that Saturday, so that's six, and the Saints start a week later. So we will have seven football is backs. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's like the 25 days of Christmas. Like you get that little calendar, you pull the little thing out of it. I forget what that's called, like an advent calendar, and then boom, you finally get to the uh, – the real thing. <laughs> I was uh, completely off the topic of football. As I explained at the open of the show, I was explaining why I've only done one podcast in the past week. I went to New York last week for uh, my friend's wedding, Michael Portner. And I left like super early Thursday morning. Like I caught a 6 a.m. out of Memphis, which means like a 3:20 wake up call here in Oxford. Um, yeah. thinking I could like work like on the side, maybe turn out a couple of newsletters, another podcast, well, that didn't really factor in what I was going to be doing at night and how I'd feel the next day. Um, but I had never been to New York. Have you ever been? That was actually my first experience doing uh, New York City. Yeah, I've been to New York, um, and it snowed in May. Whoa. And in my head, I thought, okay, we're never going back. Like, I'm never going back. And then I meet my wife, and we get married, and she loves New York. So eventually, I'm going to have to go back, but I, I will do so reluctantly. Uh, just wasn't, wasn't my favorite place. I appreciate the what it, like, what, what it is. Like, it yeah. really is kind of the mecca of American society. It really is mesmerizing, too. So we, like, took the cabin to Lower Manhattan, um, we kind of stayed in Midtown and then the wedding was not on the Upper East Side, but kind of in that Midtownish area, Columbus Circle or whatever, right before you get to like the super duper nice. It's a fantastic ceremony and incredible weekend altogether. But like I appreciated what it was like. It was kind of mind blowing to see that like, wow, this just keeps going and going and going and going. And like, does it stop? And that didn't even count like the other boroughs. 
and like, but I couldn't live there. Like I would need some way to escape. No way. Like in Dallas, and I get that there's everything you could want to do there, but like living in Dallas, there's pretty much anything you could want to do in a city like that. But I can also go out to like Frisco or something and be on a golf course where there's not very many houses and stuff. And like, it take me 35 minutes to go 20 something miles out there versus like taking you 45 to go to like driving there would just be a no go. I thought it was very cool. I had fun. But in turn, if someone was like, would you go live there for a couple of years? I think my answer would be no. I just, I feel like there's no escaping it. Yeah. I have a friend that lived there for a while and he said one day he was late to work because he would walk to work and he was late to work one day because for the first time he said in weeks, the sun hit the sidewalk as he was walking to work. So he sat on like a bench on the street in the sun because he hadn't felt it on his way to work in weeks. And so he was late one day and I thought, I can't say this word on this podcast, but that like, there's no way you could ever get me to do that. No way. Like that. And even just walking on those things, they're like, people just bump into you, not really care. Uh, some guy took offense to the cab driver going across the crosswalk. We were already at like close to our destination. He tapped the top of the car. The cab driver just took off running after him. I was like, does this guy have a weapon? Is he coming back? Like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> just the, the, just like general bitterness towards one another there too, is a little, uh, is a little uh, mind blowing as well. But anyway, it yeah, was like cool. the question is, why do you think those people are so unhappy? It's not like a cultural thing. It's a it sucks to live there thing. Yes, and it's like I see. You know, I mean, you could go walk to your daily commute and see nine hundred thousand people or something insane. Like, what do you care about your fellow man here? Versus, like, you know, right. if I bumped into someone in Oxford and then just told them to f off and like maybe gave them the finger, I might see them again in a week or two. It was, yeah. like, and they'd be like, "Oh, there's that guy." That that's got to be a large part <laughs> of it as well. Not that I would ever want to do that anyway, but like, I think the just general disdain of how it crowded it is all the time makes them cranky as well. That's my general familiarity is holding you accountable. That's what it is. (laughs) That is. And if nothing else, I don't know what that says about me, but Hey, it is what it is. Um, All right. Let's dive into the football aspect. This we'll talk a little miss, talk a little bit of state. Ole Miss is as we record this on a Monday night, about a week or so, a little under a week into like their first practice. I think they reported like a week ago, Tuesday and camp is like doing, you know, from a coverage standpoint, it's like this great, like, False hope to like, awesome. You got press conferences, stuff to talk about. And then you get like nine days in and it's like, okay, we got two and a half, three more weeks of this before we actually do anything important. We may hit that point, but I got to be honest, I'd played a lot of catch up over the last 24, 12 to 24 hours on press conferences and video and reading and stuff. And they're almost a weekend and I haven't really felt it yet. Maybe that's because I'm not having to sweat at practice every day and write the stuff myself. But there's a lot of fascinating stuff with this Ole Miss team, and it's not just really the quarterbacks. That's probably where we should start, but do you kind of get the same sense? Like this whole kind of storyline unknown will last a little bit longer than maybe it has in years past. Yeah, and it, hell, man, we might not even know it, truly. I'm going to contradict myself a little bit because uh, when we talk about quarterbacks, I've got a take about the quarterbacks that contradicts what I'm about to say. We might not know like if Chris Partridge is ready to be a by himself play caller, uh, what Charlie Weiss Jr., well, how influential he'll be on play calling anyway, but what it's going to be like with him. Whoever wins the quarterback battle, we won't know really how good they are, possibly until week five. So not only is this a thing that we're not going to know like during camp, because like there's an open scrimmage on Saturday, and yeah, sure, you'll be able to see 
like who's lining up at linebacker, which is a very interesting thing, how they're going to handle that position and whether they're going to drop in a rush end back or bring a couple of these run first safeties up. Like that's all interesting, but they're not going to give us anything and we won't know anything. And if it goes well until Kentucky, so, so many questions and no answers almost until at least week three with Georgia Tech. But more likely, if this team is as talented as people think they are, until week five. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Like the Georgia Tech thing, I don't think they're going to be very good. Um, reading between the lines on some stuff that I've like heard slash read, um, that could probably turn into somewhat toxic situation. Um, over there in Atlanta, I'm not sure Jeff Collins has a firm handle on that, but that to me is like the, uh, kind of like a half like practice test or something, because like, if, as long as you don't go over there and com- just completely pee down your leg and just be com- a complete disaster, Ole Miss will probably come out of that game victorious. I just think they have a lot, they have better players and they have a hell of a lot more of them than what Georgia tech will have. But again, it is a road game against an ACC school. You're not going to just walk in the building and be able to win. But if you were competent, Ole Miss should find a way to win that game somewhat comfortably. Yeah. To your point beyond that, you know, I feel like every time we do this with Vanderbilt, they play some weird game and it ends up being closer than it should. Kind of like last year in a weird way. You remember that game? It was like really close for like three. It was one of the worst football games I've ever watched. It was, it was horrible to watch. It was with the Egg Bowl five days later, it was very clearly – like a nothing burger in terms of just like, look, this team's beat up. They just played a physical game against A&M. They're just trying to get through this, but just the way it looked, you couldn't help but in the back of your head be like, it's, it, is this team like, are they like that 2014 team showing up in the Peach Bowl? Like, is this going to go badly for them next week? And then, of course, they got healthy and Corral is awesome. But you're right, that Kentucky game will be the first test, and they're very fortunate that game is in um, Oxford instead of Lexington, Kentucky, because that could really be – you know, I'm not going to use the word trap game this early in the year. Hopefully I don't use it all season, but that could be like a really, really tough place to go try to win a football game if you're Ole Miss. But as Kiffin kind of, Kiffin's been asked about certain things about that, whether he plans to play two quarterbacks in the season, uh, schematic stuff about play calling, blah, blah, blah. And every single time he's gone back to just like, man, that's so far off. I really am just worried about today. And I don't think he's BSing it. I mean, I think he does obviously have to look a little big picture down the line. But with so much new with this team, I do really think he is consumed by each and every day because he's got two new coordinators, even though Partridge worked with them last year, a ton of new players. He's got to figure out a quarterback thing. He got asked in media days about Alabama, and he was like, no disrespect to Alabama, but I don't even really know when that game is. I know it's later in the year, but like that's so far out of my mind. And I think there's some legitimacy to that. Let's – Let's start actually with the coordinator piece of it, because um, if Kiffin's policy is still the same as it was when I was there right before I left, that will probably be the only time we get to talk to or see her them talk until the bowl game. Um, you know, there's that, I think I've told this story before. There was like a famous, not famous, one of Kiffin's first like introductory things with the media was like an off the record deal in the Manning center. And they kind of just chatted and took questions. Like Matt Luke used to have people, like we'd go to a, like a, place on the square and like drink a beer for an hour or whatever. He was a little more um, media friendly, but um, we did that in like a, over a lunch in a conference room and, and Lebby and Durkin just kind of smiled. And I think Durkin was like, see y'all next year. Like that was it. They're not talking to them again. And so I found that fascinating. I, you know, I've heard Chris Partridge talk a few times, but not a ton. I was, uh, 
I don't know how to say this without sounding stupid over a 10 minute interview. I was pretty impressed by the guy with the way he speaks. And I feel like Ole Miss has a lot of those guys on staff. Randall Joyner is another one. If you've ever spent five minutes talking to that guy, it's like, wow, you just kind of listen. And he was a little kind of reserved at first. And I was like, oh, this guy's not used to doing media regularly, but then he kind of got warmed up. And by the end of it, he seemed a lot more honest than a lot of people I've seen in that setting. And I think that's a good thing that Ole Miss has a lot of those guys on their staff and just some notes to roll through here real quick. I do think they're going to have more depth defensively than they have had in quite a few years, particularly on the lines. And he's played a really big part in that. So is Randall Joyner as well. And if you're talking about this Ole Miss defense being better this year, doesn't it start there? The fact that they will probably be have a real SEC defensive line rotation for the first time in the Kiffin era. Yeah, I got that feeling too, listening to him. I was, I was impressed by him. Also, I feel like uh, that uh, – the Kiffin strategy of the coordinators talk once. I mean, he he stole that, if you will, straight from Nick Saban. And I feel like he probably really liked that. And so he's doing the same thing for his guys because he loved not having to talk to the media in Tuscaloosa. Um, but yeah, it's got to start up front. Now, what will they be like without Sam Williams? It's a good question. But the thing about that team last year, and it's crazy because it's largely the same personnel when people were clamoring for them to get out of the three-man front, my response would be, who's the fourth guy? Get out of the three-man front and play who? Who would be your fourth defensive lineman? Because right now, is there a single person in that position group that you're like, yeah, that guy can play and be effective so they can change their, their scheme and add a fourth lineman? They didn't feel like they had the fourth guy on that defensive line last year to do anything else. Maybe they did, but uh, I sure didn't. And and then you turn around one year later with a lot of the same guys. Now they've added other pieces as well. And you look at the defensive line and you think there's not an elite level pass rusher that we know of yet. Maybe Cedric Johnson can be that guy. But you would think he can be that guy. pickups, but in terms of experience, depth, and, and quality as well, when is the last time they've been this deep up front on the defensive line? Oh, I'm not sure I'd ever – I could probably BS an answer. I'm not sure I could actually give a, a good one. I know they're – I'd have to go back and look at those 2014-2015 defensive lines and kind of think, like, depth-wise. Because top end, it, it, you know, they had some really good players in that team and I, both of those teams, and I kind of remember those guys – but in depth, I, I got to say, it's, it's been a while since I've thought about the Hugh Freeze era, and I can't remember kind of the back end of that, but it's got to be that 2014, um, probably that defense. 2015, they were still pretty good, but not quite as potent up there. But you're right. And I mean, I look, I don't know if this means anything at all, but they're a week into camp, and they talked to Partridge, and the media's talked to a couple of different defensive guys. And I've read a lot of Chase and Neil's notes, which they've done a really good job with on the site. Um, if you're not a subscriber, I would definitely encourage you to do that to the uh, listeners out there. But you haven't heard like Tywone Malone's name hardly at all. And I don't know if you've read things elsewhere, and that's just my perspective from kind of what have I read. But like, I do think he'll probably play a factor in things. I would, I mean, he's a pretty talented kid. But the fact that he, like he hasn't been someone that you've, you know, you've had the note about him being in better shape or looking stronger and all that is kind of telling of the depth they have in some ways, I would think. Or maybe it's a Taiwan Malone thing, but I would tend to lean towards the former instead of the latter. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and there's only so many guys that can go around, I guess. But um, somebody that I'm I'm actually excited to see is somebody that we've seen a lot of. It's Katie Hill, uh, right? I mean, he he's lost a little bit of weight, apparently, uh, shed off some of that bad body fat. But 
towards the end of last year, he was quite good. And, you know, you look at stats and that, that doesn't tell the whole story. He was really effective at the end of last year. And now you would think maybe they still do run the three, two, six. I don't know. But with Partridge being the coordinator and, and the idea that they're going to provide uh, more, not flexibility. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? This is very stupid that I can't come up with it. More diversity, I guess, in terms of the the fronts they run and, and the looks they give. It might be more than just a three-man front with only two linebackers constantly, and guys like him can show out even more than they were able to last year since they were basically always being doubled. Yeah, and the one disadvantage of like not being in it full time anymore and being able to like go to practice. I know that the guys that up that are doing it and going to practice every day can't like report on the schematics, and they probably can't tell a whole hell of a lot from you know open media scrimmages and practice and stuff. But I would be curious to kind of get some sort of inkling of how different Ole Miss will look defensively because as you hit on last year, because of the personnel they had. And that was one of the things that Durkin did a really nice job with is actually making a competitive unit with what turned out to be a lot of really good players and a couple of great players, but not a ton of depth and kind of being vanilla, but eccentric in the same time, right? It was a lot of the three, two, six. It was because it was out of necessity and they had to. And you think on paper, and again, we, I guess we won't really know until we get into the games that they will have the ability to do more stuff if they want to. You know, there's some question marks at linebacker, but I think they have enough good players there to where that's not a huge issue. And they're going to be, I think, borderline awesome at corner and still really good at safety. And then the line piece that we just talked about, I think they'll have the ability to be different, but will they and what will that look like? Because I don't really know much about Partridge's background as a coordinator. He was always like, anytime you talk to him, talk to someone about him, it was always about the recruiting side and his personality and that more so than defensive schematic. So I'm, I'm, I'm very curious how different they're going to look because he does have the ability to, but does he want to? Does he like the 3-2-6? I'm just curious what his defensive philosophy is. Yeah, and a, a lot of the players, if you listen to them, have mentioned aggression, that they'll be more aggressive because they really weren't last year. You said it. I mean, as good as they were at the back half of last year, and they were very, very good, and Durkin deserves a lot of credit for that. Correct me if I'm wrong. It didn't feel like they uh, were really doing a lot of creative stuff. They were just playing good, sound defense with a good secondary and a great pass rusher and two really good linebackers. And they weren't like surprising people or they weren't over like being aggressive or, or overly attacking. They just were well coached and had good players and played good defense at the end of last year. I don't know if that's good or bad or somewhere in between, but every player that has been interviewed from defense has talked about more aggressive and we'll see what that looks like, but that's all we have to go by, right? Is we'll see. Yeah, you're exactly right in that sense. And you know, the, the Durkin aspect of it was, I remember he was being a lot more comfortable when he got Jake Springer back, kind of having him around the line of scrimmage and being a little bit more aggressive um on some stuff like they were really really vanilla particularly through that Arkansas game and I don't know if it was just coincidence or perfect timing that Springer comes back at Tennessee and or if it's just surely the disastrous performance against Arkansas where they're like well we can't do that again um or maybe a little bit of both they were a little bit more aggressive in some ways after that but I, a lot of it was just guys getting better and so I'm just curious kind of what I don't know I'm just want to see what this 
defense like looks like and what Partridge looks like as a defensive coordinator. Another piece of what you were talking about is like, I mean, he used the words like, you know, if you don't hit, you won't play. And I think he was talking about the secondary when he was that aspect of it, but he used a lot of stuff about aggression and being kind of hard nosed. And I don't know if that's just kind of how he is, or that's something he identified last year that they didn't necessarily do enough or at least not until the end of the year, because you know, it was such a low bar to jump through for this old Miss defense for the last, like, better part of a half decade. I, I kind of wrote a couple times, like, they undoubtedly play with an edge down the stretch, but, like, was that an edge or was that just typical SEC-level competency and physicality based off whatever the hell we saw with Crime Dog and, you know, you name the defenses through the year? So, I don't know. I, it was it was interesting to hear him talk about that a couple times, but I do think he knows he has a lot of really good players. Um and he probably needs a couple of them to turn into great players. But I do think he's pleased with the debt because he got asked about the uh, kind of the recruiting aspect of it as it relates to the defensive line and how he's turned things around. And like he kind of like opened, like raised his eyebrows and was like, yeah, it's a game changer now because uh, I imagine he remembers the situation he inherited up there when they got here. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And I can't help but wonder if maybe we overblow and not not you and I I suppose but just people in general are overblowing the hasn't been a coordinator before thing if that's not something that we are making more of it than it is because think about the people that he has coached under and and, and been in the booth for and with and you know maybe it makes a difference maybe it's a big deal maybe he doesn't transition well but it's hard to imagine that he has coached under who he's coached under being a co-DC, yes, I know not calling plays, but still being involved in all of that. And then the transition going poorly. I, I have a hard time fathoming the transition going poorly considering who he's coached under, who has essentially endorsed him. And let's be honest, Lane Kiffin could have found a defensive coordinator and hired him. He chose to stick with Partridge for a reason. Maybe there's great signs that the transition's going to be very easy. And maybe that's me looking at it through red and blue lenses. I don't know. But the amount of people that he's coached under and learned under, it, it would be hard for me to believe it doesn't go well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, he worked the first, I know at least the last two years, and I think the enti- maybe the entire time at Michigan under Don Brown, who, I mean, if you look that guy up, I was doing something for this back in the spring And, like, one of the first ones is, like, an 11 Warriors article on his motto is solve your problems with aggression. Now, (laughs) that's that's certainly one hell of a motto, um, depending on what field you work in. I guess it plays a little bit more in football. But that is kind of a hard-nosed type, you know, career defensive coordinator. I don't know if Don Brown's ever been a head coach. I don't think he He has. has. He's 95 and 45 in football, and he's 26 and 10 in baseball. Wow, was that that had to be small school then, right? That was he was the interim head baseball coach at Yale in 1992, where he served as the defensive coordinator that year. Okay, I go. Oh, so was, I get they must have fired a baseball coach with like, "Hey, Don, when football's over, will you go hop on over to the Diamond for a year?" Yes, and he's the guy that actually is back at UMass now. He had that four because he yep. got he he left or whatever. I think Harbaugh fired him. They made a lot of whole scale changes for that. He went to Arizona. And then he's the dude that's back at UMass now because I mean you talk about what a what a what a project you got on your hands there. I forgot he did have like a five year stint there as well. 
wasn't he at a Big Ten school too, like early two thousands? So, so here's his uh, his rundown. He got his first DC job at Mansfield, then went to Dartmouth. Yale was the head coach at Plymouth State. Back to DC for Brown, UMass, Northeastern as a head coach. UMass as a head coach. Maryland, UConn, Boston College, Michigan, and Arizona, all as a defensive coordinator. So he has twice, but he's one of those guys, and you got this is probably honestly date like this is kind of where my age becomes in. You know, you have those guys that are like from your football watching lifetime, they're like, oh, these are defensive coordinator lifers, or these are special teams coach lifers or recruiting lifers. And you're like, actually, you know, way back when he was actually a head coach. Like I had those, I had that joke one time with um Oh, shoot. What was that guy's Jack Bicknell Jr. Where everyone talked about, you know, Rich Rodriguez, Mike McIntyre and like uh, Bicknell Jr. is like 2000 coach of the uh, whack coach of the year. Right. Right here. But no one wants to talk about that. So he's like one of those guys. But you're right. Just getting back on track here. Don Brown is one of the better defensive minds in football and has been a defensive coordinator for a long time and coached a lot of really good players and kind of comes from that aggressive background or that's kind of his philosophy. And so you know, do you see the way Partridge talks? You can kind of see he embodies that some, but even to complete fairness, he did have a quote where he was like, look, we're not just going to blitz because we blitz. Like we're, we're going to be smart about this type of thing and kind of, you know, study week to week and, you know, blitzing I and mean, being aggressive is a lot more than blitzing. It's knowing angles and stuff like that. So, you know, without getting too yeah, off. That, and that reminds, didn't that remind you of Lane as yes. well? I mean, and it's not a novel concept, right? It's not like Lane Kiffin's the only coach in America that, caters scheme around players and not caters players around scheme like that he's not the only guy that does that but that that feels like that's such an emphasis with the way he coaches and then to hear his new defensive coordinator basically say the exact same thing we're not going to run our system we're going to run what beats our opponent the most we're going to figure out what beats them and we're going to do that yes they've got base defenses and they go in with plans and stuff but when I heard that, I thought, okay, that's Lane Kiffin talking just on the other side of the ball. Yes. And there's probably something to that and that you, you bring up sort of an interesting point from that perspective, because I thought a decent bit about this a lot, particularly in the last couple of days, as I tried to get caught up on everything with camp and kind of get back in, in the rhythm of things as we really buckle down here for football season. I brought up earlier, right? There's a lot of guys that are impressive when they talk, um, on Kiffin's staff and look whatever you think of DJ Dirk and I will never forget walking into um that off like that first kind of introductory meeting when Kiffin and the staff got hired I knew a little bit about Durkin obviously the Maryland thing is well documented but I never like watched Durkin at a press conference other than you know in complete crisis type of thing he was the most charismatic guy of the bunch and you know Lebby's sort of that way in his own way he's a little quieter but like he he kind of blew me away in terms of just the way he talks. And there's a lot there's a lot of that on Kiffin's staff. I mean, people rave about Jake Thornton. I don't personally I've never personally talked to him in any sort of interview setting, so I'd be kind of talking under my ass there. But like Randall Joyner, definitely one of those guys. And that there's a common theme there. Even Charlie Weiss for being as young as he is is well spoken. And I don't I don't know if that means anything at all. But I. To use a contrasting example, Mike McIntyre is a good defensive coordinator, a good football coach, and a very nice man, but like he would never blow you away when he spoke. Rich Rodriguez was funny, but he never really blew me away when he spoke. And Kiffin's had a lot more of those guys, and maybe that's just a level of competency of a good staff. I don't know. But I honestly go back to the fact that it's like it's probably hard to bullshit Lane Kiffin in a job interview, isn't it? Like, 
we're going to do yeah. this my way or the rah-rah stuff. Lane's a pretty cerebral guy when it comes to football. So I imagine you got to be pretty, one, honest, and two, on top of it, to kind of woo him in terms of what your football acumen is and the way you teach and convey messages. Yeah, and, and he's not the micromanager either. I mean, he, he is. Uh, he spends a lot of time away. You know, maybe not right now, but he spends more time away from his program than Nick Saban spends away from his, for example. And so he hires people that, as you said, need to be on top of it. They need they need to be on top of it because they're not going to be micromanaged. They're not going to be told what to do all the time. It's it feels like based on you know my thirty thousand feet observation that there's a little bit more freedom on his staff. I know he has more freedom than basically every other coach in America when it comes to as long as you win, I don't care what you do. You, you don't have to keep office hours from five to midnight if you don't want to just win and, and everything else will take care of itself. It feels like to your point, that's all kind of by design that he, he hires young motivated people that he doesn't have to micromanage that he knows will take care. I mean, Randall Joyner, you mentioned, is as impressive of, of a guy as you can imagine. Like when you hear him talk, you think, no wonder he's a good recruiter. Like that makes sense to me that he gets players to relate to him. You don't have to micromanage guys like him. Yeah, you're right. And look, don't get me wrong. Like Kiffin can be demanding in a lot of other ways, right? I mean, you got to, we are still one off season removed from being like, who's left on this staff and who's getting yeah. fired and who's getting replaced him. But you're right. I mean, Kiffin, uh, Weldon worked for him for a year and kind of echoed the same sentiment. It's just like, look, if he trusts you, he's going to let you do your job. Now you can, a boss can be demanding in you know, a bajillion other ways. I've had a couple of them, but like, you know, at the end of the day, it all kind of works out if they trust you to do your job. The worst kind of workplace environment, at least, you know, beyond like scandalous stuff is the guy that doesn't trust you to actually do what you're doing. And it's just kind of it, you know, in your grill all the time or kind of all over having his fingerprints all over everything you're doing at Orgeron, kind of a famous example of that. So, yeah, there's a common theme there. And I, I imagine, again, it just kind of goes back to being hard. It probably is hard to BS Kiffin in an interview. And, you know, the recruiting aspect of Partridge, I talked to a couple people about this. And by people, I mean, I brought this up a couple of times, but like with these NIL interviews for helping the Grove Collective out with some of those stories. Now, granted, it's for a very specific purpose. And I'm not there to like jot notes down and like, you know, burn someone with a quote, but it is kind of just like, you know, unsupervised access to just talk to some of these players on Zoom for, 45 minutes sometimes most of them didn't take that long but it's not that controlled setting where they're you know worried about you're going to burn them it's for a specific purpose and we'd start just talking about stuff and I go back to um Tysheem Johnson he came down and committed to Ole Miss and said he's going to Ole Miss and signed without taking a visit part of that was COVID but parts he was big in you know getting recruited by Michigan Ohio State and he just is like I really trusted Chris Partridge he just he didn't really tell me everything I wanted to hear. He told me he had a plan for me and here's how he was going to get me there. But, you know, he didn't tell me I was the greatest you know, recruit since at name X guy and I was going to play and be freshman all SEC. He just told me what he liked about me as a player, what he wanted to teach me to get better and what he thought I could be. And it just felt different. And there, I've heard that. I've probably done, I guess, 16, 17 of those now. And I've heard that time and time and time again particularly with the portal guys. They're like, Kevin doesn't BS you. It's just like, here's what we want to get out of you. Here's what we think we can help you with. And here's what you're going to have to do, but you will compete. And I think there's a common theme there. And so with all the staff turning and all the newness, and don't get me wrong, this could, 
this could this could be bad. Like this this could not work out. It's a lot of new, but I do think that 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 is a part of what a good culture is. And I just thought listening to both he and Y speak probably you know kind of underscored some of that as well. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. It absolutely does. And uh, we'll see if it meshes. I, I hate that phrase. We'll see because that's not what we're supposed to say. We're supposed to have uh, opinions and guesses and stuff, but um, the, the coaching staff turnover um, doesn't have to be an issue if you hire well, right? And so we're about to find out if uh, the turnover was similar. I'm not saying that Lane Kiffin's Nick Saban because he's not. He's got to win something first. He even said as much Saturday. They haven't won anything yet. Um but we'll see if he can do it the way Saban does it to where staff turnover is not unexpected. Guys either leave for upgrades or, in some cases, lateral moves that make you scratch your head a little bit and keep on moving forward. Is it about the system, the process, the program, or was last year lightning in a bottle and Durkin's gone because he's gone and and your staff leaves and Levy's gone and Corral goes and you take a massive step backwards because last season for Ole Miss, it, it was great. Don't get me wrong, but that kind of season has been done before. Not that often, but it's been done before. They played in a sugar bowl. Houston Nut played in two cotton bowls. He freeze played in two access bowls. It, it, it has been done at Ole Miss. And for every one of those, you can ask what happened next. Houston Nut went to two Cotton Bowls. Then what happened? Hugh Freeze went to two Access Bowls. Then what happened? And for different reasons, they both failed afterwards. Here's a huge test for Lane Kiffin, and I'm so interested in this football team for many reasons. Obvious one is that, that I get to cover it every day. But this team is so fascinating because of that right there. We are about to learn if Lane Kiffin is a sustainer or not. It doesn't mean he has to go back to the Sugar Bowl. But if they take a massive step backwards, it's fair to question his ability to sustain a program. And let's say they win eight games or, or they win nine games and they go back to an access bowl or they play in what's what's the next best thing after that? What is it? Is it Tampa? Yeah, maybe the cheese it that's been getting a lot of pub lately. But no, I, I get what you're, you're going with this. Well, whatever the Outback Bowl is now. Yeah, yeah. So, so if they're able to do that, then you start truly believing in him in the long term. And it's just year three, and maybe that sounds crazy to some, but I think that's true. If they take a massive step back, you wonder if he can sustain. But if they if they go eight and four, they go to the Outback Bowl, or if they sneak their way into an access bowl again somehow with this very easy schedule, there's no reason to doubt him anymore. None. And right now, there still is some reason out there, maybe not to doubt him, but to there's still unanswered questions for him. And this season will answer a lot of those. Yeah, I think so as well. And I look, I think generally, in terms of like, you know, define what a huge step back is. And I'm not talking like, to you just in general out there to those listening or whoever else it's like you know last year 10 and 2 they were don't get me wrong they're 10 and 2 that's I mean you can't take that away from them but you're also like four plays away from being eight and four um and that's just kind of the difference I mean look that you had playmakers and you won the games that's not taking anything away from it but the margin for error is slim so they could go eight and four this year and that not be a huge step back or seven and five you know depending on how it looked and 
I don't think people would be, you know, thrilled with seven and five, but I think optics would matter in that situation as well. But I'm fascinated by it as well because he's a dot, you know, he's had a lot of staff turnover. He's really embraced the transfer portal. I think that's kind of along with his philosophy of, you know, he keeps saying, we don't think outside the box, we create a new box because you do have to be a little bit different in Ole Miss. You can't really do what you do in Alabama or an A&M or something like that in terms of resources, as much as people don't want to hear that. And sustaining, it's not easy. And I'm I'm curious to see where that goes from here. They have a lot of really good football players in the building. Um, You know, I'd probably argue overall, it's a better team. It's just like, man, if you stuck Matt Corral on this team, what would that look like? Um, oh my God. Yeah. The fact of the, yeah, the fact of the matter is, is you don't like, you got to replace the quarterback and that's probably where all this goes next. And we'll, I want to hit Weiss, but we'll hit the quarterback kind of as we go into Weiss. Weiss spoke on Saturday or Friday, whatever, whatever that was. I think it was like the second, a day or two into, into camp. Uh, not a whole lot. He didn't really give much of a committal answer on the quarterback thing, other than the fact that he did have a competition both years at FAU. I think that matters to some degree. Um, one of them was that last chance you kid. I can't remember his name. I think DeAndre Johnson, and I don't think he actually ended up winning the job. Um, they had another guy that was an OU dropout a year later that won the job. So he did, he's, he's dealt with this before. I don't know how much you can put on what happened to him at USF on him because of just the circumstances around that USF program. Um, but I wasn't really surprised by much. He did give a non-committal answer on the play calling thing. Um, he got asked about like, well, how will you call plays? What would this look like? And he's like, that's a coach Kiffin question. I'll let him handle that. And it's like, okay, you know, God doesn't want to step in it. I get it. It is what it is. But then on top of that, he got to ask something about like, you know, how do you see like the tight end thing playing out uh, with Trigg and uh, Casey Kelly? And he said, you know, uh, coach Kiffin will ultimately decide who's the best one and who plays the most snaps. And it's like, well, is that a joint decision or is he, is he plugging in the Legos for you here, pal? I don't think you can make a ton of it. But the fact that he didn't come out and just be like, yeah, look, we're going to evaluate them. We're going to do that. He, he deferred to, quote, Coach Kiffin both times. I thought it was a little bit interesting. I don't know if you picked up on that. No, I did. And I keep going back to something that I think you and I have talked about last year as well, where I read one of those anonymous coach quote things, and I swear it was co- – I don't know who this was coming from. It may have been coming from Jeff Levy himself, but it was like, oh, they're going to miss Levy. He was, he was really in control of that program or whatever it said. And I thought, you know, I've heard a lot of people say – something like that, that, oh, Levy was the the real orchestrator of the offense the last two years, and he was why they were so good, and he was all this stuff, and it's just they have put this guy up on this pedestal um, that may he, – he may belong there. I don't know. But I do know from my untrained eye watching these games on television, Lane Kiffin had a play sheet in hand talking into his microphone – while his team was on offense. So if it was all Jeff Levy and he was making all the calls and it was his offense and he was doing everything, who the hell was Lane Kiffin talking to? Was he reading a bedtime story to Knox? I I, I don't understand. Like those two things don't jive. It was all Jeff Levy's offense, but also Lane Kiffin's holding a play sheet and talking into his microphone before every play. He's whistling at Matt Corral for audibles. He's doing all this stuff. And you've got people saying that it was all Jeff Levy. Oh, th- those two things are th- those ca- they are mutually exclusive those two things cannot be said at the same time so which one was true i have a feeling lane kiffin was more involved in the offense than jeff levy's camp if you will was letting on and he might even be more involved in it now with charlie weiss jr because of what you mentioned but i keep 
hearing people say things like that. And I saw the anonymous quotes, uh, quote from coach thing, and it made me laugh because Lane Kiffin must have just been reading bedtime stories to his kid because he's talking the whole damn time his team is on offense. Who is he talking to? Counterpoint, what if they were just bitching at each other the whole time? They may have been. You no, know, it no may have been calls, just, What was that? <laughs> Why is this guy out there? And don't, I mean, on a more serious note, there probably was some of that. And I think some of it's like the tendency aspect of it too, or like, because Levy's up in the booth. So I imagine some of it's the communication of like, you know, Lane's on the field. Like he can't see everything. And so, but I think you're right. Look, I, I think there's there's a way for there probably to be a little bit of balance there. I mean, from everything I heard, there's – Lane was involved, definitely involved, but kind of big picture stuff. I think it's probably straddling the line of, you know, having influence, but not at being a micromanager type of thing, because I do think Lebby had some autonomy in the offense. I'm not suggesting that you said he did it, but I, I think he was probably straddling that line. Um, and then also I don't know, a complete non sequitur to that, like the half the time, you really don't know what those dudes are saying. I, Kiffin let, had that nugget at like halftime or whatever after the Alabama game. <laughs> he said like midway through the second quarter or something, he was talking to Levy about like, God, that popcorn quote, that was dumb as shit. Like <laughs> probably yeah. should have said that. <laughs> so some of that stuff I wonder is just like how much of it is just innocuous banner of just like, well, that didn't go well. I would love to, we'll never hear anything like that. I like, that's why I like some of the NFL film stuff that they put out years after the fact, but like, I would just love to listen to a game of innocuous banner between like the two guys that are offensive guys. Like, cause I think it would be funnier like if it's two guys that are kind of on the same page and kind of have the same, you know, interest and strength, but you're right. I mean, look, I, I think he will, if there is more, and I never really answered your question, by the way, I, I don't know what it's, it's going to look like. I, I, I have a feeling that that lane will be more involved in offensive play calling than he was a year ago. I have a feeling that that's the case. And look, there is an aspect of this. Of, I don't think he wants to be the play caller. I think he understands that he has way too much going on for that. Like that's the only one thing Weldon kind of taught me pretty quickly as I would just ask him about like football stuff. Like a lot of these guys, look, some of these guys do it and that's why they're really good at it. But like a lot of these guys are pretty like could do it, but understand that like, Hey, I've got a lot going on here. If I'm just focused on my menu and my script, I, that's not going to be like my knowledge, my knowledge and energy are better served kind of further spread out. And I do think he has a lot of that in him. He may have had a direct quote about that over the last year. I can't remember, but I do think there's an aspect of that. Now, again, younger guy, I think he's just a younger, less experienced guy. There will probably be some natural, naturally a little bit more influence. And that's just like any other job in the world. Um, you know, I've started a new job and not to compare myself to Lane Kiffin or Charlie Weiss Jr. But if I was 35 and had, you know, 11 years of running marketing for a private equity firm, I'd probably have a little more pull five weeks in with my you know, uh, late 50s year old boss than, you know, I do at 27 years old. That's just kind of the natural progress in a life. Maybe Weiss yeah. Jr. can grow a beard and start looking older. I don't know. He's probably not looking for me for suggestions, but I do think there's probably a natural bit of that too, just him being young and quite literally not having the years and miles under his belt in that sense. Oh, for sure. And, and not that this matters. He definitely didn't come off as an SEC offensive coordinator in the interview. doesn't mean it was a bad one or anything. He just, uh, he showed his age for sure. It definitely, uh, definitely looked like he is one of my friends, basically. <laughs> that's, that's how I felt. It's like, Hey, that's one of my buddies up there uh, who happens to be, um, an offensive savant, which is what I've heard that he is. And and you and I talked about this before. Um, 
a lot of people rave about his work ethic, that, that he's the kind of, you know, he works 12 hours a day at his craft and it's, it's not fake. That's what he is. He's uh, not using his last name to get jobs. He's using his last name as a reason to prove himself that he is more than just Charlie Weiss's kid, that he stands alone as, as an offensive mind. So it's an interesting balance, right? Because on one hand, he looks really unassuming and almost kind of nerdy and like somebody that I want to hang out with. And on the other hand, you hear kids, a football genius, brilliant offensive mind grinder. And he's just not what you would picture when somebody would say that to you, you know, not that it matters, but it just, it, it makes me, it cracks me up when I see him or hear him talk. Well, one, he needs, he was way too nice. He thanked them for the media for being there, which is the first no-no in coaching ever. You have to act like you don't want to be there at all. And the guys you're looking out there who are probably not dressed as coolly as you are, are the dumbest SOBs you've ever met. So he's got to learn that. He's got a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, a guy on campus just won a national title here that could teach a class on that. Um, so maybe he could talk to him. I don't know. But um, that you but you're right. Like on a serious note, that is his thing. I mean, look, I did that story on him back in uh, December where I talked to, oh, what was that guy's name? It was the offensive line coach at Florida when Weiss was the OC after he left Notre Dame, and then one other guy. And like you know, seventeen, you're like, uh, what? You, you remember the Moneyball scene where Billy Bean would point to Jonah Hill or Brad Pitt would point to Jonah Hill about that? It was kind of like that. It was like seventeen year old Charlie Weiss Jr. Uh, Weiss Senior would ask a question the dudes wouldn't know the answer. And he just like, Charlie and spit it out. It's like, so this is his thing. Like, this is what he's been yeah. prepping for from the time he's like 16 years old type of thing. That doesn't necessarily equate to wins or you being a good football coach, but it's quite the head start. And I'm curious to see what that dynamic looks like. We'll get back to Michael Borky in just a second. But before we get to that one, to remind you, podcast is brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywright.substack.com. Just type in your email and you get a 16-ounce prime strip and a $5 pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. As we hit in the dog days of summer, prime grilling season, you're going to want to go into LB's and find your own favorites. Oxford is so lucky to have a place like LB's. It is absolutely the best place in the world to get meat. I love the uh, tri-tips. You got the filet burgers, all kinds of delicious sausage, fresh seafood. Greg's got it all, and if he doesn't have it, he will get it for you because he wants to make your grilling experience great absolutely a staple of the Oxford community. Check them out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right. Back to Michael Borky. Um, it will all probably be for naught if the quarterback situation doesn't work out. And we've now gone almost an hour into this pod without talking quarterbacks. That's okay. Uh, maybe it's a breath of fresh air. I know everyone wants to talk quarterbacks, but like how much can you say after a week of camp? Um, you know, based on what my eyes have read, my ears have listened to and not been able to see um, for myself in person, it sounds like much of what the th- um, much of what we thought would be the case so far. And one, that's been not much traction, or at least not, you know, any t- no tipping of the hand. But the fact that it's Dart takes a lot more chances down the field. He makes a lot of really incredible plays and a lot of dumb mistakes and some near dumb mistakes to where. Altmeyer's probably a little bit too conservative and it's a fascinating dynamic because, and I'm sure this is not hardly the first time this has happened, you know, in the last little bit, but it is very fascinating to watch Kiffin and then kind of a new offensive coordinator and an off new offensive staff try to pull the polar opposites out of two guys that are fighting for the job. Like 
everything they want Dart to kind of rein in a little bit is exactly what Altmaier does too much and vice versa. And for a team that's really kind of well-equipped on the line, they're going to have one of the best Ole Miss offensive lines, you know, on paper ever, um, I think, or at least in the last 20 years, three really good running backs and unproven receiver group, but definitely more SEC caliber receivers, you would think. They're going to be a team that doesn't necessarily need a Matt Corral, Superman cape-like thing. And so how do they find that happy medium and who is the guy? I'm fascinated by this more so than anything else. Love my guy Buchanan. I wasn't really fascinated by that in the Swag Kelly battle. was definitely not fascinated by the Plumley Corral thing. This is actually interesting to me, very. Yeah, well, the the uh, the Swag Kelly battle was not a battle. I talked to somebody on the team that said uh, the coach didn't, uh, Hugh Freeze, the coaches didn't tell them who their quarterback was going to be for a while, but the entire team knew after the first practice who their quarterback was going to be. It was not a battle at, at all. It was Chad Kelly was clearly <laughs> the best option on that team, and they all knew it basically right away. Um, you're right about this one, though, because now we're going to to get a, a pretty good look into Lane Kiffin's mindset, right? Because if what everybody's reported is true, and and Jackson Dart is more willing to take risks, and and at at times it becomes detrimental. And Luke Altmaier is at, at times throws the football down the field and, and does it well, but is far more conservative. I think I know where Lane Kiffin would go with that because as Neil pointed out this morning, and it was a good point, Jackson darts 19 for a year. I mean, he, he just turned, um, just turned 19. And so he's a young quarterback. And I, I remember another young, very talented quarterback at Ole Miss that was turnover prone early in his career. And it ended up working out for him. But, if conservative is your selling point, I don't think you will play quarterback for Lane Kiffin. And here's why I say that. The Alabama game this past season, as a shining example to me, the number of times, the controversial number of times that Lane Kiffin went for it on fourth down instead of field goals or punts, why did he do that? Because he wanted to win the game. And he knew punts and field goals were not winning the game. It's, it's a riskier decision, but it maximizes your chances at winning that game. And I can't tell you the number of people that texted into our show that would say things like, why didn't he just punt? He could have kept the game closer. And Lane Kiffin doesn't care about keeping the game closer. He cares about the W or the L next to the, the results of the game and nothing else. He went into that game being aggressive like that because he wanted to maximize his team's chance at winning conservative out of your quarterback for Ole Miss in 2022, I think can win you seven games without even thinking about it. And I could probably get to eight. I think I could get to eight on defense running game, conservative quarterback play. You win your four non-conference, you get Kentucky, Auburn at home, state at home, Vanderbilt, I can get to seven or eight wins with conservative quarterback play, but you are not beating Alabama and Oxford on defense and running game. You are not going to Fayetteville and winning on defense and running game. You are not going to college station and winning on defense and running game. And if I, if I read Lane Kiffin, right, 
and the way he approaches coaching in his program, he's not going to settle for, oh, well, we'll get back to a bowl game and the fans will be happy. It's, I want to win every single game on the schedule. How do I do that? Having an explosive offense that at times takes risks because you have to, if you're going to beat Alabama, if you're going to win in Fayetteville, if you're going to win in College Station. And so if, if the selling point, again, I said at the beginning of this, if the selling point is conservatism, that's not going to win the job, and that's not going to be a quarterback for Lane Kiffin. Counterpoint to the the 2020 Matt Corral version, like if 2020 Matt Corral, that's what um, Jackson Dart is, though. Don't you think the result is the same? Because like, yeah, probably. I mean, the six interception game. Look, I get it. it. It's been talked in over and over again. And the LSU one probably wasn't as fair because they're in the rain. They knew they couldn't stop anyone. And that kid's just chucking up Hail Marys. But you get my point. Like you have better pieces around you now. You trust your defense a little more. And while most of that aggression, I think, was rooted in, well, one, what the just being aggressive in nature, but also, you know, uh, Matt Lindsay's uh, vaunted Bible that they kept on the sideline that became a weird storyline for a couple of weeks. That you know, the book, the book that everyone wants to talk about of situations and all that, and you know how that plays into decision making. And so, I think that's part of it as well. But it is a finding a happy medium with the two, though, right? Because I think you know, complete reckless gunslinger, nineteen-year-old Jackson Dart that's going to land them in some really terrible situations because, you know, you mentioned you're not going to Alabama and winning or or playing Alabama, I guess it's in Oxford and, you know, winning on running and defense. I would tend to agree with that as well. You're probably, you're going to need one road game this year to have a guy that just makes a ton of plays. Now on the flip side of that is you could lose to Kentucky if the dude throws four picks and they just have a short field three times, you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's, it's, it's not two sides of the same coin, but like the extremes of each one could right. end up in the same result. And that's what I think makes this so fascinating. And you're right. Like if, look, if conservative, the whole, you know, quote unquote game manager thing is the selling point. I don't think that's eventually the long-term solution, but you do have Altmeyer who's a year into the system, right? They're the same quote age in years, right? They both went through their true freshman year last year. All, uh, Dart is a much younger Uh, person he just turned 19 in may he'd been 18 for his entire freshman year i believe altmeyer turns 20 in october um altmeyer's been there a year longer like i just said a little more continuity but that's also a kid that you know look i'm not about to say look look what he did at auburn this is probably why this is your guy but he did not completely you know poop his pants and, you know, he's been a guy that also got thrown in for, what was that, almost three and a half quarters of a, uh, a Sugar Bowl against that Baylor defensive line. Um, you know, I talked And to did him. well. Yeah, yeah, did for, for the circumstances, did well. Is that going to win you 10 games or nine games this coming year? That, that, that performance, you know, replicated, you know, 12 times? Probably not. I would actually say definitely not. But, like, how, how does he grow from there? And I think that – you know, that plays in the demeanor aspect of it as well. I talked to him for 45 minutes or so this summer, and, look, we didn't get any, like, pressing issues. But, like, he really is a level-headed kid. Like, not a whole lot riles him up. I was even having trouble making him laugh. That's probably just because I'm not funny. But, like, he was just, like, very personable, but also just very, very even keel. And you could see that in both of those games. And, you know, I imagine now being a true sophomore, having whatever limited sample size, but that's still that under your belt – is going to help because 
The other piece of this with Dart is the fact that he's had so much football turmoil from he probably didn't like look if you looked at USC's quarterback room in August I don't think he thought he was going to play he probably would never admit that but he gets thrown in like three games into the year then he gets to get hurt and then the staff's fired I don't know the exact timeline there comes back plays not fully healthy has the coach his coach is replaced by the one a guy that brings in the one guy that could probably unseat you as USC's quarterback in Caleb Williams and then he transfers to Ole Miss and is learning a new offense all before his 19th birthday and has gone through an entire second spring practice. That's a lot of football life lived. That's not a lot of continuity. That kind of sounds like Matt Corral's first you know, year and a half or so. Not quite the same thing, but you get my point in terms of the lack of stability. I just wonder if that works to his disadvantage at all. And the other piece of that, that I was going to get at, too, is with respect to Pullman, Washington, and a couple other places that Dart played last year, uh, that is not – you know, Razorback Stadium. That is not whatever they're calling that place. Uh, Kyle Field down there at AM. That is certainly not Death Valley in Baton Rouge. And so I don't think that at the end of the day that's going to be decided solely on demeanor, but I do think that is an important factor in this because, you know, Altmar at least, well, even though he wasn't in, you know, he had to go in the Tennessee game for a couple of plays. I get it. He didn't put a huge factor, but I mean, he dodged mustard bottles too. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's been in that environment and kind of knows, wow. Cause I talked to him about that a little bit. He was like, I was like, so what is that like? Do you just get numb to it after a while? And he's like, sort of, but then there's a come down period like for an hour after the game, you're like, I couldn't hear anything for three hours. And now it's dead silent. Like that type of you know little nuances, I think is an important, uh, important thing that will work to Altmaier's advantage as well. Oh yeah. And we won't know. Uh, I mean, hell we won't know if, either one is able to handle that as the full-time guy until death Late Valley October. at you mentioned. Yeah. I don't I mean, like Bobby Dodd's chances of getting super loud there. No, no uh, not at all. I mean, in the, like if he wins the job, I don't think it's it, uh, what I've learned over the last couple of days. That there, there are people that have already like decided, Hey, this is my guy and here's why. And if, their guy doesn't win the job. They think like it's a problem. And I, I cannot right now. One, I can't tell you who the favorite is. I, I heard some of that Saturday that, you know, this guy's the favorite and, and we're not watching the same things Lane Kiffin is. We're not. I mean, I have my theory that I said before that if conservatism is the selling point, you're not going to win the job because that's not how Lane Kiffin coaches, but that's just, my guest, I'm not in that room. I'm not making these decisions and, and nobody else is either. Even the, the football writer who has written it for decades does not watch the game the same way that Lane Kiffin and Charlie Weiss Jr. watch the game. The, it, how anybody can watch a few practices and say, this guy's the favorite is kind of mind blowing. But if it happens to be Luke Altmeyer, that doesn't mean that they're going to hand it off 45 times a game and he'll throw seven passes and they'll all be checkdowns either. Like, it's not like he's some kind of bum. He's a guy with a lot of talent and a lot of upside. So if he wins that job, it means that he started showing a willingness to push the football down the field more often. If Jackson Dart wins the job, it means he started cutting down some on his mistakes and errant throws. Either scenario is a good one. The only one that I can think of that is a bad thing, that is a bad scenario, is if 
they haven't made a decision and they're into the season because people don't listen to Lane Kiffin. I swear it, it's mind blowing. I, I can't tell you the number of times that I have been asked or I've seen people suggest, well, they'll just use the non-conference games to make the decision. They'll do a two quarterback system in the non-conference. What the hell are you talking about? Lane Kiffin said in Atlanta, he said in his opening training camp press conference, we don't want to do that. We want to make a decision as fast as possible. Now, he said they don't want to rush it, but they want to. In a perfect world, he would already know. In a perfect world, that guy would have already established himself as the starting quarterback. They probably wouldn't have announced it publicly, but they would know already. This idea that they're going to use the non-conference games as a gauge to see who the quarterback is. And they're just going to give 50% of the snaps here and 50 there. And the first quarter is going to go to Altmire, And the second quarter is going to go to Dart. And they're going to go back to Altmire, And then uh, to throw the Jackson public school people a bone, they're going to give Kincaid Dent a couple series just so some people can write that he's also in the competition. If they do anything resembling that camp did not go to plan. They want to have a starter named by Troy, and he's the guy during the season and moving forward. You can't also, so I said earlier, they should kind of sleepwalk through their first four games, right? Here's where I'm contradicting myself. You can't just screw around with Georgia Tech and Tulsa. You can't just play this quarterback for a few series and this one for a few series and have no rhythm. Yes, Georgia Tech is not a good ACC team, and Tulsa is Tulsa. but. Georgia Tech beat North Carolina at the end of last year. Soundly. Tulsa went to Columbus, Ohio, and had them on the ropes for three quarters. So not only is that a bad strategy, they don't want to do that. So why do people keep talking about it? I don't understand it. Yep, and I you can't do that against those two, but you can against Central Arkansas and um... – Oh, who's the other one? Why do I keep forgetting this? Troy. Troy first, Troy. Central Arkansas second. I don't know how I continue to – I've done that on like three podcasts in a row. And I was – I'm glad you brought this piece of it up because I was actually in the – in that camp to some degree. And this was just thinking about it throughout, you know, June, July, whatever. Where I was like, this might go into the season. But I didn't think about it from the aspect of like, well, do they want it to go into the season? And I, obviously from everything Kiffin said and just conventional wisdom, you would think, oh, of course not. No. So, like, does that mean it won't? Of course not. But I think you're right. I don't think they would prefer it to be that way. And Weldon kind of pointed that out uh, when I was talking to him a, a couple weeks ago. And I was like, actually, you're kind of right. And then Kiffin actually said it a couple times, you know, since as well. But, like, does that mean it won't? Like, do, do, with, with the way this is going so far, and, like, again, it's only a weekend to camp. Like, that's – with the lack of traction, and it's just like, well, this guy's too conservative. This guy makes too many mistakes. Uh, that's not, you know, one guy saying, well, this dude's spinning it better than I've ever seen it. Another guy coming in and saying, well, this guy's spinning it better than anything I've seen. You know what I mean? It's not like rave reviews. And so I, the other part of Kiffin's quote, I believe, for, I think it was – I can't remember if this is the one from Saturday or when he spoke on Thursday, but he also was like, hey, we're not going to rush it. Like, we're not going to make a decision just to make a decision. And so that is another fascinating piece of it. Uh, to, to your kind of to put a bow on what you're talking about, if it doesn't go into the season, that is a good thing for Ole Miss, assumedly. Like, again, you don't know anything. It could go completely terribly. But, like, that is a good sign. If they name a starter and that's just the guy for Troy, that is a good sign for Ole Miss. Now, 
could it go into the season just because they're like, man, we haven't seen a lot. We probably like some game action would be interesting. Yeah. I think that's somewhat, I wouldn't say likely. I don't really know what to think about that at this point. I was actually trying to look at this earlier, but I got sidetracked and forgot and actually couldn't find an accurate play by play. Um, Ryan Buchanan and Devontae Kincaid played in the first quarter. Excuse me, Ryan Buchanan, I think Kincaid played in the second. In the first quarter of Ole Miss's season opener in 2015. Now, granted, they were up 27 to nothing and ended up winning that game 76 to 3. So it's not the perfect example. And while Chad Kelly was like named the starter, they still kind of gave the other two a little bit of a look because you didn't know much about Chad Kelly at that point. And it could be one of those things because, you know, for as we, I mean, assumingly they are going to beat the hell out of Troy and they're going to beat the hell out of central Arkansas. So could it be a little bit of that? And then the last thing I'll throw back at you is like, this isn't even really a counterpoint. It's also not final. Like if you go to Georgia tech and say it's Altmire and like, it's like, well, they won, but that didn't look great. Do you go to dart the next week? You know what I mean? I mean, Cooper Bateman started against Ole Miss in 2015 and like the third or fourth game of the year, whatever that was in Tuscaloosa. Um, so like that also doesn't mean it's final as well. And you know, I don't know, which one do you think is more likely that one guy starts 12 games and plays all 12 games or excuse me, starts all 12 games, or it's a little bit wishy-washy because neither one of them grabs the reins. Barring injury, uh, you should hope that it's just one guy, right? Obviously, you know, that's why I get paid the big bucks, but, um, I feel like that's the most likely outcome though. They, they've still got two weeks to, uh, it's more than two weeks, right? When's the first game? First game's 19 days away, so they've got two weeks and some change. No. No, it's 26 days away. Yeah. So they've they've got three weeks and some change before they have to make that decision. Um, I agree with what you said at the beginning. Um, you should hope that they have a starter named good to go, ready to go by Troy, because that means somebody emerged. And thinking outside of that, um, I'm going to channel my inner Lane Kiffin here. Um, I don't want to think about that right now. Right. <laughs> um, just because I, and, until that actually happens, I, ha I still think that somebody is going to emerge and they will name a starter. I, I think that's going to happen. I, based on somebody I talked to today, it might already be kind of happening. Interesting. I sort the, the I was about to bring that up. The practice, you know, Chase and Neil's practice report kind of had like, hey, both dudes looked really good, which was not the case for the Saturday one, where it was like, oh, both guys did some good things. I'm sure people will get super tired of hearing that race throughout camp. So they're like, both look super sharp today. And uh, I know some people think this is like BS, but they do seem to like kind of make each other better and kind of root for each other. I believe Altmaier was the first person to reach out to dart when he, you know, announced that he and Michael Trigg were coming to Ole Miss. And um, Dude, this is so good for them. This is so good for them. That's why the stuff about how one people were saying that they should just give the job to Altmaier and, and recruiting a portal quarterbacks insulting and all that, whatever that was uh, back. Well, they had to have at least one more quarterback, if not more in the room, they literally were going to go into the spring with two scholars yeah. quarterbacks on the roster. You can't do that. Yeah, and so if Luke wins the job, think about how good this month was for him. How unbelievably good this month would have been for him if he wins the job. And if he doesn't, he got to compete against a guy 
like a Jackson Dart. And then if he does end up transferring, he both of these guys are so much better for having dealt with this this fall. It, it was a no-brainer for, for the coaches to make that call. But yes, uh, this is good for the both of them. Competition breeds excellence, right? That's what people say. If you're just handing the job over to somebody, they won't prepare as well as they would have like they are right now. I, 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 I have been mind blown is a little extreme, but I, I've been kind of scratching my head at the way some of this stuff has been talked about um, with battle lines being drawn, not near as intense as, as the corral Plumley thing, but people have already picked sides. I hear from those people, you know, I, I got a screenshot sent to me. I don't know what site this came from uh, talking about how, Kincaid Den is definitely in it, and he's a dark horse to win the job because he's been on the team longer that's or something. A, that's it, a take. I mean, he did go to JA, but I don't know if I can squat on that one. Yeah, it's, it, in the, the absence of finality, the void gets filled with crap, and that's kind of where we are right now. Kiffin's not ready to name a guy. I don't think either guy has emerged to the point where they're ready to name him. They've still got three weeks to decide. And because nobody's going to know for sure, it's just going to be filled with conjecture, like what we're doing. I mean, we're, we're guilty of it as well, right? I've just speculated and opined over everything. But that's what it's going to be filled with until somebody names one. What I would caution people to do is don't pick a side. Don't, don't pick your guy. They're both your guy. Because I've already got a direct message from somebody after a podcast I did yesterday, or I guess yeah, yesterday night, it published today, uh, talking about how he didn't think it was fair to the Mississippi kid to be talked about like he didn't have as much talent as a kid from Utah. And it's like, but they're both yours. Don't think like that. They're both your guy. If you pick one and he doesn't win the job, you're going to be disappointed over nothing. I don't know. I, I I don't like how some people react to quarterback battles, and we've seen it a couple of times lately. And I just I, I caution people, like the guy that sent me the DM, like, hey, you know, it's great that one of them's from Mississippi, but they both play for Ole Miss. Why does it matter where they came from? Yeah, and like not that I, this is not like a retort to what you said, but like the Corral Plumlee thing is not an example because oddly enough, that got more tribal in 2019. And somehow while I was still at Super Talk, I got roped into that because people would get very upset because one, the team sucked. No one liked Matt Luke, or I say that the results Matt Luke was putting out on the field. But like Plumlee was like exciting on a team that didn't have a ton of excitement. But like I, the whole time I was doing the podcast with Colin back then, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, this is not sustainable. Um, like, I, I yeah, don't that was tribal. This is not tribal. Yeah, uh, that, but that was <laughs> that got I mean, weird. People were making like, spears get, out of rocks and like putting paint on their face and shit, logging onto the message boards. Yeah, I'd get DMs from people, and like I was still just kind of doing like that full time for the first time, and I'd be like, why are you so angry? Like, this is just I'm just some podcaster. This is like don't don't like, you know I, this is not a prescription, man. This is just entertainment. It, like that that one got weird. This one is more of a legitimate battle. Both dudes are four star quarterbacks. They're both talented guys, and I'm curious to see. And they're both young, right? Like. There is a world, and I'm not saying this is the case, but say whoever loses this. Let's just say Dart wins it. I, I could have picked Altmeyer. It's not one lean or another. 
Like there's a world where the other one ends up either sticking around or they transfer and go end up being kind of awesome somewhere else. Like what if they're both just end up being pretty good? They're both 19 for the time being. We outlined, you know, that Altmar is a little bit older, but like they're both young players. Um, and I think that's important as well with not much game experience. And so like what they are as quarterbacks now is probably not what they're going to be. At least Ole Miss would hope that would be the case. Oh yeah, and and what can't happen to is it, it happened during the Corral Plumley thing, where Corral would make a mistake on the field, and the camera would immediately go to Plumley, and then you'd pull up Twitter, and it was like, "See, this is why Plumley should be playing," and all that all that stuff that happened. That can't happen here. If Luke Altmaier wins the job and throws an interception on the second series, you, you can't just be like, "Well, he sucks," and that's why Dart should have won the job because Jackson Dart probably would have also turned the football over early and vice versa. They're young quarterbacks. They have to be allowed to screw up because young quarterbacks screw up and they have to be allowed to do it without such toxicity coming from some directions because they can lie all day and say they don't hear it. Oh, they do. They know. They feel it. And it would just be best if it never happened. Well, and the difference in like some of the 2020 stuff with Corral and Plumlee, either despite the national media just completely not understanding what was going on, and I get it, they weren't like a marquee program. Ole Miss is a lot more rounded offensively. I don't know what they're going to look like at receiver. I think they're pretty unproven, but just with adding a Malik Heath, adding a Jalen Robinson, uh, presumably sounds like finally healthy Jonathan Mingo. I know that the little spring setback was a little weird, and I don't really put much into the fall. I think that was more so – kind of showing how tough that kid was to come back and play the last couple of games. Clearly very, very physically compromised, um, but wanting to get back out there from that injury. And then, you know, the, 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 what's the kid's name from Missouri that I forget over and over again? Jalen Knox. Knox. That's just been around for a bit and, you know, throw whoever else you want to. And they're the kid from Louisville. The point being that they probably have more SEC receivers. And then Trigg's kind of the unicorn there. It's like, what, how, you know, this kid's obviously super talented, but, like, what is he as a player immediately? And a really good offensive line in a run game. And old Lane Kevin loves to run the football. It's a team that's ranked, you know, led the SEC in rushing one year. I can't remember if they were first or second or third. They're top three last year. They love to run the football when they can, and they're really damn good at it. And they have three really awesome backs, including one guy who could be a top three running back in college football. I don't think that's hyperbolic at all. Like This could be a team that's defined by kind of running over, around, and past you. And look, I don't think they're going to be the, you know, shout out to the Tennessee Titans from five years ago, exotic smash mouth or whatever that crap was. But like, this is kind of what like this team could be what Matt Luke's kind of wet dream of an Ole Miss football team would be. <laughs> they could be really good. And I'm not saying that necessarily speaks towards conservativeness or Altmire or whatever you associate with that. But I do think it will be like, you know, which guy can keep it in between the lines while also making enough plays to win the football game versus turning it over three times. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they should and- be allowed to make mistakes. And you're right. Like that shouldn't, whoever the guy is should not have a thin leash like that, but you can't play recklessly. That is the one thing that I think will derail this team. And I know that's not some profound analysis, but the rest of this kind of car is pieced together. And I hate to use the cliche, keep it in the lines, you know, example here as I just run through cliches, but the point being, they have a lot of talent around them. And so it, you know, they will have support if they are good enough and not reckless. Yeah. There's a couple of ifs, but if those ifs are answered, then this could be one of the more 
dynamically balanced offenses in the SEC. Uh, if like Jonathan Mingo can stay healthy and emerge, or, or there's just one wide receiver that can be a dependable, reliable, dominant pass catcher, and they've got a couple of candidates for that. It's not like in years past where, well, if they get great play from this position group and that play was never going to come, this group can produce like a dude that, that is a dominant wide receiver. They've got some guys that can be that guy. If Michael Trigg can can buy in and learn and understand the playbook to his own admission, he said he needs to be more like Casey Kelly and he needs to know the, the playbook like the back of his hand. He said that himself. So so if he can can do that, and if the offensive line can stay healthy, where's a weakness? And, and yeah, like when they face Alabama, that's a different animal, but every other game on the schedule feels winnable and, and like a matchup nightmare for defenses because they have a dynamic running game. When healthy, the offensive line should be very solid. If one of the multiple candidates emerges as a dude at wide receiver, you've got a solid group there. You've got a tight end that's capable athletically of being an elite level football player. All of the pieces for elite offense is there. It is absolutely there. If those ifs are answered. Yeah. Okay. It's not like those are tall asks either. It's like if the offensive line can stay healthy, knock on wood, they do. And that I think kind of pro- probably the, the kind of X factor and all of that is you've related back to the quarterback is the fact that you know, a healthy dart supposedly is very mobile. And you didn't see that last year because he had the meniscus. Then he came back and wasn't fully healthy, but like, you know, for as many mistakes as he might make with his arm, I'll just kind of want to see what his feet look like in game action as well. And Almar is not like, you know, a complete statue either, but I do think kind of some of the ad libbing stuff and some of the things that dart can do with his feet. I don't know how much of you'll, you'll get that in practice. I know they do a lot of 11 on 11 and, you know, I don't know, maybe some of that's why some of the mistakes are happening and some of the reckless decisions, who knows, but I'm just curious to see what that looks like in a game and what, because, you know, a mobile quarterback, I mean, you saw it from Corral last year. He's a good deliberate um, kind of purposeful runner. He's not plumbly that's going to be like, wow, that white kid is fast. But, like, he was a really good, efficient runner. Um, and I'm just curious to see what the dart aspect looks like that because you really haven't seen that because he hasn't been healthy. Um, before I keep you here until, you know, midnight tonight through the uh, couple Wi-Fi snafus we had, I got two things, two, two more main things for you. Um, how much Juice Kiffin has been talked on radio with you guys? Not much. Actually, That's although um, I, I do have this idea and I've, I've said it on Twitter, I've said it on podcasts, I, I even said it on, on the radio show and Richard d- did not like it uh, at all. Um, I think Ole Miss needs to solve the mascot thing, not nickname. People confuse nickname and mascot. Nickname does not mean mascot. I'm talking about mascot. End it once and for all and make it a fleet of labs, Labrador retrievers for a few reasons one nobody can make fun of you anymore oh are you the old miss labs now yeah labs are awesome everybody loves a labrador retriever the best dogs on earth first of all so nobody can make fun of you anymore everybody loves labs but here's how here's what you do you partner with one or all of a, a foundation that trains and provides service dogs for veterans uh, children with specific needs like epilepsy or, or blind children, service dogs for them. 
and, and the kind of service dogs that visit hospitals. And you get, whether it's dogs from these facilities or you just have a handful of labs on hand that promote and partner with those kind of foundations, and that's your mascot. You have a bunch of labs that are promoting those kind of foundations, and you put a little Ole Miss scarf on them with the service dog vest with a QR code that directs you to that foundation, and that's what you do with your mascot moving forward. Juice opened up the door. I don't a hate fleet, that. That's a lot. A to fleet of labs, man. Everybody loves them. It's it's an idea that I pitched to Keith Carter on Twitter. He probably won't respond to me, but it's better than the shark. It's better than the bear. Everybody loves dogs. Dogs are cool, especially labs. Juice is awesome because he's a lab, and labs are awesome. So take advantage of it. And I don't know if you've seen how much it costs to train and get one of those service dogs. It's insane. So make something good out of it and have five dogs running around the grove for a bunch of drunk people to pet on game day. It's a win-win-win. Okay, so I I don't hate that idea at all. Um, I, I that's that's I mean, look, I, you probably still have a couple ruining traditions, guys, but I guess it's better than the non-fluffy looking San Jose shark. And I mean, it doesn't look like the normal shark. Um, I, I I I heard that once described as a home run when they rolled it out, and I, I'm not sure in, in what ballpark. Um, but <laughs> I wouldn't hate that in any sense. I was just more like the 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 kiffin weirdness annoying aspect of it like the i get some people get annoyed by it. i i just think it's kind of yeah is it a little over the top like the dog has a twitter account is there all the time it, yes but it's also kind of funny and like how can you hate a puppy but like uh, the other piece of this is like from kiffin's thursday media availability the way he just talked when he got asked questions about juice kiffin was this like personable as Lane Kiffin has been outside of a few rare examples since he got into Ole Miss. Hell, he smiled like all three times he got asked the question. Um, he, you know, made a ref metaphor to, you know, like he that Wild Rose Kennels or whatever is training juice because it's at that age where the dog needs to get trained or whatever. And he's like, honestly, the more and more I talk to these trainers, it's the same thing we're trying to do with these kids. And then he kind of cracked a joke about parenting and all of that and like kind of smiled and actually opened up and seemed like a normal dad for a few minutes. And I thought that part of it was kind of fascinating in its own right. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you here, but the other part of that that was just hilarious to me. I don't know if this was written about or picked up on the fact that he just goes, I know a lot of things with me and my career and really just my life seem like they're planned, but in reality, they're just not. And it works out that way was both hilarious and kind of relatable to me. Not that me and Glenn Kiffin have a ton in common, but I do just love the fact that he's like, yeah, I just kind of got a dog that I had to take care of because my kid stopped wanting it after it was like a puppy phase. And everyone thinks this was some grand strategy. We've kind of turned it into that. We created our new boxes, but like I didn't get Juice Kiffin thinking this would be a recruiting tool type of thing. I thought that was hilarious and kind of showed a side of Kiffin that you don't see very much. Yeah. I, <laughs> um. I'm with you on the first part is I have a feeling it's going to wear thin, but how relatable is that though? Yeah. I just got a dog. And I mean, my story's not similar in that way, but like I got a dog and took him to the vet and that's where my wife worked and that's how we met. And now we have an almost three-year-old. 
it's like you just get a dog and then suddenly magic happens afterwards. It's the damnedest thing. But um, more dog questions, less quarterback questions will get Lane Kiffin out of his shell, I suppose. It, it did. It really pulled him out of like the shell. He started grinning. He mentioned that, like, you know, uh, I think Richard asked him, like, you know, dog or kid harder. And he's like, I don't think anything tops a teenage girl. Um, I, I think that's about as difficult as it gets. I don't really have any experiences that pertain to that. But I just thought it was funny and I related. I don't know. When he was just like, yeah, I know people think all these things in my life are well calculated and well planned. And like, he kind of alluded to the fact that some of them are, but some of it's just like, yeah, this just kind of happened. <laughs> Like all of this just kind of happened and then it turned into something. I thought that was super, super funny and super relatable from Kiffin. And if people are annoyed by the dog, whatever, it's a dog. If the players like it and the recruits like it, I don't really understand the juice week thing, but if it plays and it works, then, you know, whatever. I, I look at that part of it the same as the white helmet thing. I know I've mentioned this a billion times on this podcast, but like I was just talking to Matt Luke one time when we had like five minutes of downtime during the midweek and, I asked him about like the white helmets and I was like, do you like them? He's like, the recruits like them. So like that, what, what other answer do you need? Like the kids love new cool stuff. Like, what does it matter if I like it? And I was like, fair enough, man. That's a good point. So I kind of look at it similar from that. It probably will wear thin. It may get a little bit over the top, but at the same time, I mean, it's a dog. It's not a shark. So that's good. Yeah, man. I'm telling you, dogs are awesome. I, <laughs> that video of him with the GoPro strapped on him is the best video of camp so far. How can you hate that? I don't get it. I, I've got a, a British lab myself too. Uh, poor thing's got three legs though. And, and just the sweetest dog on earth. So like I relate to juice on, on an emotional level, like, uh, cause he's identical to my June, you know, but he's got an extra leg. That helps. Um, it does. It does. She's a little bit easier to manage, although she's more clumsy. Yeah, I could see. I could see how that would be the case. And then, like, I don't know. I mean, you probably just need like four, right? A fifth leg. Like, if Juice was working with a fifth, that could get weird as well. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that has been uh, has been talking canines. Talking uh, Juice. Yeah. Last thing before we get out of here, I kind of wanted to look at a little bit of state, and we ended up doing a ton of Ole Miss, which is fine. Like, I but um, and then a little bit of SEC. I will hand up admit I kind of am going to start diving in. I'm going to do some season preview stuff on the podcast the next couple of weeks. I've you know started reading the whole Phil Steele deal, but I've not watched a second of like state media from camp. Let's start there. What's kind of the vibe out of state camp? You know, Mike Leach. This is his year two and a half, really. Like you know, for a system like that, I kind of view it as like the COVID year was what it was. It was a bonus he found his quarterback. I don't know how much you can judge him, but he does need to beat old. Ole Miss and he does need to be better this year. I'm fascinated to kind of see what that looks like because kind of close out this thought of man is the SEC a bear. Yeah, it is. Um, well, anything coming out of state camp? Uh, no, they're just, they're really good. Wide receivers, the best. Uh, the offensive line is going to be fine. Uh, defense is going to be the best and they're going to win nine games. Um, no, look, they, uh, I, I do think defensively they're going to be quite good. Uh, I think they are that side of the balls might be the most underrated side of the ball, possibly in the SEC. Like, are they going to be as good as Georgia or Alabama? No, probably not. But uh, if you can look at that group and what they have returning and think anything other than they're going to be, uh, they're going to be salty. Uh, you're crazy. You're not looking at it, at it objectively. I mean, they've got a bunch of guys returning. 
Arnett's really good, too. Arnett's really good. The front six should be good. Emmanuel Forbes is back. Uh, Their defense should be uh, quite pesky, I think was the word I used today on the show. Um, Offensively, though, you know, they've got some receivers emerging. Uh, Apparently, Caleb ducking, not what your phone – well, I guess what your phone auto-corrects to. Um, It'll be accurate for once when you're typing ducking. Um, uh, Apparently, he's emerging. You know, they've they've got some guys, Ray Ray Thomas, they like. Jaden Wally's good. Like, they've got a bunch of receivers, and, you know, Rodgers is back, and all that's really, really good. But the the main question is still offensive line, and the biggest issue for me is it – it's not like they were only bad at one spot, which was right tackle, and they were very bad at right tackle last year. It was the entire unit minus Charles Cross. Charles Cross was the top 10 pick. The rest of the offensive line was bad. Those guys are being replaced by somebody that was already on roster or a junior college transfer. So you're telling me that they're going to be improved up front. Well, then if Scott Lashley was so bad, that anybody is better than him. Why was that anybody not playing ahead of him last year when he was on the roster? Help me understand that. The guy that's going to play is a senior. So why wasn't he playing last year if Scott Lashley was so bad that anybody besides him is better? Are you saying that your coaches cannot evaluate offensive line play and the better option was playing behind him because they didn't portal a replacement, he's just already been on the roster. And Charles Cross's replacement is a guy that was probably already on roster. They hope this junior college player can help them as well. But it looks like it's going to be two returning guys from last year replacing Charles Cross and Scott Lashley, and you're telling me that position is going to be better. Show your work on that. Why do you think that is other than that's what I hope that it is? I usually have an opinion on the questions I ask on this pod. I really don't have one at all. Is there any merit to, you know, I always hear the leech looks for a specific type of lineman. Is there any way that that whatever that is and that means reaches a bit of an impasse? Because I don't know, SEC defensive linemen are built a hell of a lot different than pretty much any other uh, conference in the country. Um, Look, you got exceptions, but you get what I mean on a weekend, week out basis. Is there anything to that? Because you know, you just mentioned that it was a disaster outside of Cross, who's really, really, really good. Like, is there anything to that, or is it just a lack of talent? Like, I've never understood what that means. I get some of them are lighter, and you block differently because it's air raid, but what does that actually mean? Because at the end of the day, you just need really talented athletic dudes to block the freaks that are trying to kill your quarterback. Yeah, I don't – honestly, I don't know what that means, but either way, the, the, the guys that are playing are going to be ones that he didn't recruit. So either way – it's it's not somebody that they evaluated themselves. Um, th- this is a critical, critical season for Mike Leach, but what makes it so interesting is going into this year, he just got a contract extension and a 10% raise. He got a $500,000 raise on top of a contract extension going into this season. That tells me that despite what people want, there is no hot seat that John Cohen should realize that he's kind of married to Mike Leach and Mike Leach is, is going to require patience. Like you can't go two and out and three and out with coaches at a place like Mississippi state. That is not hell. It's not even a top five job in his division. Is it? Uh, So 
you can't go two and out and three and out on coaches and expect to have a candidate list that is attractive at all. So they've got to kind of buy into this, but let, let's pretend for a second that they are exactly last year's team. They are exactly last year's team. What gives you confidence that they're going to win at a high level? That's if the they whole- don't take a major step forward, th- th- this is what you're going to be. And, and, you know, they'll say they're recruiting well and the class right now is fine. But if you look at the offer sheets at their class, it, it's not unless Mike Leach is a, a, a master evaluator and has a formula of evaluation that nobody else in the country has. The outlook would be bleak if they don't take a major step forward for me. Well, and like that was the whole thing that all the way back to when we were still on radio and this got hired uh, and they both just got hired, excuse me. It was the whole, like, it made state fans mad and what, I mean, it's not like I knew Lane Kiffin was going to be some slam dunk. I was more praising the Kiffin thing from like, hey, he just injected some life into this place that's been pretty dead since I've been walking around here. Um, But like, it was like, what actually is the ceiling with this? And I just go back to the fact that, look, they are, you know, uh, Egg Bowl went away from beat eight and four last year. And if they win that game, maybe it turns out different and, you know, this whole outlook's different, but they didn't. And I just wonder, like, at, at the end of the day, you really have to run the football in the SEC. And an offense that really just doesn't put any sort of emphasis on doing that without sounding like the old man, you know, talking about back in his day how they played football, I just don't know what the ceiling is. I think you can be competitive, and you'll catch a team like A&M, and you'll catch a team like Auburn, where all of a sudden it's like, oh, these guys can't stop this. This is about to be real bad for them. But are you going to do that, you know, six out of eight times on S- eight SEC weekends? and go six and two and kind of really put yourself in that other, you know, stratosphere. I have my doubts. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I don't know, man. Dude, they were figured out problem. last year. They, they were figured out last year. And it, like you said, Auburn, it was just kind of like a runaway freight train uh, that happened to them. But it, when you're playing in this league, and I feel like I'm a stand out of Birmingham or something, but it's true where every week it's just simply different than in Pullman and in Lubbock, even though those are programs where it's hard to get players and they don't have a history of winning playing Arizona state and Oregon state and Colorado every week is different than playing Arkansas and LSU and A&M and Ole Miss in Kentucky every week. Does the sec have a dud or two? Sure. But Tennessee was not a good sec team last year. They weren't. What would they have finished in the Pac-12? It's just a totally different animal with totally different athletes. And if I was you say third so, or second, and if you're so simple, if you're so simple that, I mean, how many different calls do you think DJ Durkin had in the Egg Bowl? Different, different play calls in the Egg Bowl. I mean, very few. 20 variations of, yeah, Sam Williams, exactly. Just, I don't know if anything, it's just like I over and over. It's, but hey, Sam Williams, will you go tackle, you know, that statue in the backfield again? Yeah. And so when F, when, when a blueprint has been given and to this point, you haven't adapted yet, and you've got two decades of sample size that says you're kind of going to kind of do the same thing, what makes you believe that in the SEC West, it will be different. 
it's, it's, a, it's a, a tough question, and it's, it's one that doesn't have an answer yet. We've got to see it, right? I mean, he needs at least a couple more years for, for you to really know that it's not going to work. But there, there is an intense optimism from some fans I interact with, and I get it because that's fans and that's what they do. I would be more skeptical than them. I would not be sold 100% because it has not been pretty at all. I mean, their best win is against a six and six Auburn team when they were down 28 to three or whatever, 20 to six, whatever it was. That's their best win. And in complete best awareness, win. there is something to the fact of having a quarterback come in for his third full season and have some experience. Um, I think he was exposed a little bit by you mentioned the offensive line play and him not being very mobile um, in the egg bowl. But again, he knows he runs that system with very, very good timing and really kind of ridiculous chemistry and continuity with some of those guys. So uh, there's something there. I just wonder if that something is anything beyond seven and five. And, you know, when you're talking about seven and five, it depends on who those seven come from, whether people are satisfied. Um, and that's the kind of the fascinating part of the whole leech experience. And I don't know, do I, are we getting Alabama, Georgia again? I mean, who, who, if it's not, who yeah. do you like anyone else at all? I mean, no. I think Kentucky will be pretty good, but I'm really tired of like even pretending the whole Kentucky scared Georgia or, you know, thank you get Florida. I would say Billy Napier's a damn good football coach. I know he's got a long way to go recruiting wise there, but um, you know, if they were kind of a nine and three and it's like, whoa, they turned out a hell of a lot better. It wouldn't stun me, but uh, that's also without looking into it a ton uh, here as we sit on August 8th. But uh, what yeah, do you think? There, uh, I mean, Ohio State, they, they, they jacked the defensive coordinator from Oklahoma State. They've got oh, the I'm talent in SEC that can actually. You're, you're already ready to call oh. the Alabama-Georgia national title again. Oh, well, at least there'll be two of the four playoff teams, I think. Um, I have decided that I am not going to go into this college football season with that mindset of, well, none of this matters because it's just going to end the same way. Uh, it, it's a shame what the sport has become. And this is not an NIL issue. It's not. I think it's a playoff issue. Um, because this kind this phenomenon was happening before NIL became a thing. And like I saw a quote from Paul Feinbaum earlier, absolutely rich coming from him. I'm pulling it up right now. He said, um, this year's list of championship contenders is extremely thin. Quote, ultimately, these schools have to get past the SEC or Ohio State in the playoff, and I think that's really the problem. Well, the thing is, college football this season has so many interesting storylines. Just take the SEC. Ole Miss is interesting as hell. Kentucky probably has a first-round pick quarterback, possibly. Anyway, you've got Brian Kelly, who left Notre Dame for LSU, You've got Mike Leach is in the SEC, and he is interesting. You've got Oregon, who's fascinating now with Dan Lanning, and they're recruiting like an SEC team. Mario Cristobal in Miami. None of these programs that I mentioned are, are going to compete for a national championship. NC State's going to be fun. Well, well they're going to win a lot anyway. They're relatively interesting in the ACC. Sam Hartman's back at Wake Forest. That should be a fun football team. You've got so much to look forward to in college football, and yet Paul Feinbaum's employer is going to focus on one thing all season, and it's the playoff, and that sucks because there are three teams that can win the playoff, and one more will make it. We'll see who that is. But the discourse in college football is going to be so boring by week five when there's so much more interesting out there 
and it won't be covered. So I'm, I'm changing my mindset and I'm going to be really excited to watch Kentucky play. For example, they have no shot at winning a championship, no shot at winning the East, but they're going to be fun. And so I'm going to get that negative energy out of my mind and enjoy this season for what it is. And not when you've got Ohio state players saying that last season was a failure and they won nothing after they won one of the more epic Rose Bowls of all time. Yeah, that's a really that's, unhealthy part of this sport, and I'm going to choose to ignore it best I can. Look, I mean, that inspired me enough. I'll, 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 I usually have the same energy. I'll do my best not to have it. But, I mean, you're on to something there, and we've talked about this before on this podcast and I'm sure elsewhere, but just like the you – know, that's what I don't get about the anti-expansion. It's like, you know, you have the blowouts in the four uh, games. It's like, you want more of this? So I'm like, yeah, I'd actually have, like to have like a, you know, a seven, eight matchup that is close, even though they aren't going to win the whole thing. Like, I don't understand that. Like that, you know, the Philadelphia Eagles made the playoffs in the NFL, the, you know, the greatest, the sport with the greatest parody in any of any professional sport on earth. They were never winning the Super Bowl. I mean, the just was never happening, but like, that doesn't matter. Like they're kind of excited about it. Kind of see what Jalen hurts. Like the NCAA basketball tournament, Ole Miss made it in 2019. They were never making, they were never winning the national championship. But guess what? People were pumped to play in the tournament. And now you don't have that now. Now the whole focus is on a four-team playoff because it's almost just the hope. I mean, you're selling this is entertainment. You're selling hope. Like, you know, Ole Miss again, never winning the basketball national championship in 2019. But hey, they had a ticket in the field. There was a mathematical chance. Whereas now you have these bowl games that are steeped in weird tradition and history, but don't actually mean anything at all on in terms of the grander outcome of the sport. I'm not saying I'm not about to argue the sugar bowl or the Rose bowl is meaningless because I'm kind of trying to do the opposite. I just don't understand the anti-expansion argument from that standpoint, because if you have a 16 team playoff or an 18, 18 playoff, I don't understand why you would like complain about the 16th seed or whoever it is that doesn't have a chance. Like that's not really how any other sport is designed. Like it's, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and that part of it, I think is really kind of soured the sport a bit as well. Um, I'm kind of with you. I'll try to enjoy this for the niche sport it is, but uh, I got to say it, it, it'll be nice knowing that I have something on Sundays to where it's like, okay, this is actually unpredictable, but I'm with you to a certain degree. I, I think it will change. I, I, I say, I think, I hope it will change to some degree, but uh, it will get kind of nauseating to where it's like, Oh, Alabama and Georgia again, sick. And that's all they'll talk about it. And then on one hand, uh, like first take or whatever it's called with, Chris Russo will do a little college football and then you realize, well, these people probably shouldn't be talking about it. It's like, I hate to be that guy that's like blame the media, but ESPN in, in their coverage and the national coverage of college football has created such. And, and, and they, it's, they air these games and it's not just like ESPN owns the Sunbelt, for example, they, they own the Sunbelt. And yet, they tell you that the Sun Belt doesn't matter. Every game that the Sun Belt plays doesn't matter. Why? Because during the commercial breaks, it's who's going to make the playoff. Tune into this to find out who's going to make the playoff. And that's it. It's bizarre how they own the rights to this stuff and treat it like it doesn't matter when they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on it. It does not make sense to me. The way the sport's covered absolutely sucks on a national level outside of Ross Dellinger and Andy Staples. And I, I mean that like 
it's premier also college covered. football. Like ESPN doesn't cover it despite right. it. You know what I mean? They have like a couple college football reporters. They do a good job. Granted, they slashed half of them five and a half years ago or whatever that was when they had the layoffs. But to your point, and I'm not disagreeing, I'm agreeing, if anything, like that, they, they don't cover it. It's just like the hot take of the same four teams. I mean, it's the same thing as them talking about, I mean, I know I'm mixing sports here, but like LeBron and the Cowboys. What did LeBron tweet? Let's talk Lakers. Uh, let's talk Nets. It's like, well, the yeah. NBA is actually a lot more fascinating than that, despite you kind of knowing some of the outcomes. But they don't do any of that with college football. It's become super regionalized, where it's like, you to your point, they own all the rights deals. Not all the rights deals, but like, you know, they have the college football playoff. They have a lot of the Sun, uh, the Sun Belt games. They just got the SEC. But like, you're not going to dedicate any of your day-to-day coverage of it. You're just going to have Stephen A. Smith, who I guarantee you did not watch more than one college football game a weekend for the last half decade, start talking about how he thinks Dwayne Haskins is more of a runner than a thrower. Like that doesn't seem like great content, but what do I know? Yeah. And here we are stuck trying to do the best we can out of, <laughs> out of what we've got, I guess, but yeah. So what yeah, a dynamite that into like the podcast, it. like I just, to, to, yeah. you know, all man yells at cloud. Um, no, but I, this is great. I appreciate the time. We'll do this again, probably right before the season or something. I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll come back with our most optimistic takes about college football this year. How about that? So we'll promise the, uh, the listeners a more, uh, a, uh, more optimistic finish there before we get this season going, but I appreciate the time, dude. This was good stuff. We'll hit you up a little bit later on in camp as it progresses and uh, catch up with you soon. Of course, man. Anytime. All right, that's our show. If you made it to the end, I really appreciate you making us a part of your day and uh, kind of glad to get back in a little bit in a rhythm um, before we, uh, as football season and the kind of the sports calendar gets rolling again. So looking forward to uh, to another good year. Um, have, a, again, a lot of stuff on the horizon. Hopefully I can get a little more info to you about this pod segment uh, later on in the week. Still working out a little bit of stuff. Uh, some small things but anyway we'll be back later on in the week probably Wednesday or probably Thursday and then I'll do another Friday one as well so appreciate you guys time as always and uh, y'all have a great week and we'll catch you up with you again here in a couple days